Oh, hello, friends. Welcome back. My guest today, uh, I kind of don't know who my guest today is. His identity is being kept anonymous. He's a GP working for the NHS in the UK, and he's just released a book under the pseudonym Dr. Max Skittle. Basically, today you get to find out what it's like behind the scenes in your doctor's surgery. None of us really like taking a trip to the doctor, but it seems to not be always that fun for the people providing the healthcare either. So today expect to learn why you should never take a picture of your bumhole to show your GP, why your doctor is always running late, how come you can never get a lunchtime appointment, how long Max spends with his finger inside of other patients per month, and much more. It's really cool. I enjoyed this episode. It was fun to do it with someone. I didn't see his face, the Skype conversation. I don't get to see what he looks like. I don't know where he lives. I don't know anything else. It's just an inner city GP um, opening the doors into the world of, uh, of what it's actually like in your doctor's surgery. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern But for now it's time to speak to a GP whose true name I don't know but we're going to call him Dr. Max Skittle. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. This is a first where I'm actually recording with a guest who I don't know who it is. So what should I call you? Mr. GP? Doc? No, I think, why don't you, st- why don't you call me Max? I think that's, uh, I think that's a, f- a good starting point. Cool. So Max, which is the pseudonym moniker which you've used to write this book. So why are you anonymous? Yeah, that's right. So, so the... Um, so I guess my full anonymized name is uh, Dr. Max Skittle uh, and Max to, to uh, everyone, including my patients. Um, why anonymous? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. The first is, is to protect my patients. I mean, the whole, when you decide to write something like a, a, a waltz and all book, a, a medical biography, um, or sort of um, talking about your, your life and the job, you um, you need to protect the confidentiality of your patients, and and that's not just anonymizing them and changing ages and genders and ethnicities, but it's also about, um, I guess, protecting yourself. So by me being anonymous, it gives another layer of protection to my patients, and it it probably stops me from getting fired as well. Um, <laughs> so so uh, it's a kind of a win win. Yeah, I get that. I get that. Well, sadly, we've broken at least one of the potential um, fibs that you had, which was that you could have been Maxine 
in real life. Um, so that one's out the window. I may but... just have a very deep voice. Oh, you have no idea. Imagine, or if you're using a really fancy voice modulator, that would have been exactly. That would have been. You never cool. know. So you never know. Why did you decide to write this book? Uh, good question. I mean, I think there's probably uh, the simple answer is that I love talking about health and I love writing and. Uh, and I think that the opportunity came up when I kept coming home and I was like, oh, that's just such a good experience or such a haunting experience or such a hilarious experience. And the emotions that it made me feel on that day, I just thought, you know what, why can't we put this down on paper and why can't we share it with people and, and let them see what the job's like, let them see, um, you know, life's journey through the eyes of, uh, multiple patients and you might find that some of them resonate with you you might see a journey of a patient that I've written about and gone yeah that was me or it might be that that's you in the future like you have no idea um, and that's the sort of thing that led me to write the book it's kind of semi-autobiographical di- diary format isn't it? it kind of goes through day by day over a, a- yeah tight period yeah that's right it's a it's a diarized um uh version of a year in my life and uh it sort of takes you through the journey of my day-to-day patients but also gives you an understanding about um what happens behind the scenes like how does a how does a gp surgery run what are the highs and lows what are the hiccups um and then i suppose as a sub context to that it's about my life and about my young family and I guess how that blurring of the work-life balance um, occurs and how it impacted in me and then because that's something I guess that we all experience we're desperate to try and keep our work and our life separate to a degree but with technology and just the emotions that work pulls out of people now you realize that that's not possible and, and in the book um, there are definitely times when when that comes through. Would you say that you're a typical representation of a GP? Are you a fairly representative GP? Is your experience going to be sort of synonymous with many others? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that um, I don't think that um, GPs experience necessarily a different caseload. I mean, we all see the same people walking through the doors. Um, it varies a little bit because what happens is people decide who they want to see. And so you start to get a bit of a, a niche. So, for example, I knew that I loved seeing um, children uh, because it allows you to be a kid for 10 minutes, uh, but also sort of um, adolescents and, and teenagers who I guess prefer someone who, yeah, I mean, let's be blunt. I'm not near to their age, but nearer to their age than, say, a 50- or 60-year-old GP. Yeah. And um, and he's fairly straight-talking. And, and uh, you know, that's something that, that I've always tried to do. You know, I, I don't beat around the bush. I think you need to be honest with people. And, um, and that's never more the case than with your patients in front of you. Yeah. The topic of work-life balance really interested me. Like, I, I had a question down here that just asked, are GPs normal people? But upon, <laughs> upon reading the, the book, it, it comes across that you are. But there's something weird, and everyone that's listening might feel the same, or this might just be some bizarre quirk of my own mentality. But yeah. you kind of see 
GPs, doctors, as these like weird, angelic, omnipotent sort of fountains of life givingness. You almost don't expect them to have a life outside of that. It sounds bizarre. Like, you know, I expect a bus driver to be gruff to me if he's had a bad day, but I don't expect my GP to do that. Does that make sense? It, it does. I kind of it believe does. that they're almost above the the decree, the law of normal normal behaviour. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I wasn't sure if I could swear on this, Chris. Fire so, away, I, I, man! I, I, fire okay, right. away. I mean, to to be blunt, I mean, it, it, it's bullshit. I mean, we're we're all we're all human, and uh, GPs more so than ever. Um, we the the concept of emotion. Um, is a really difficult one with a GP and I think it varies throughout your career because basically you have to learn to to really um, suppress it when you're in front of a patient because uh, you probably read in the book you know there are there are patients that make me you know see red there are ones that make you want to cry there are ones that make you want to bang the desk shout at them just be like what the hell are you doing but you have to try and compose that to a degree and then tell them in a steady tone that I think they're crazy, that I think they're mad for making that decision, that I think they're, you know, they're talking shit and that I'm going to give them the truth and that that's the reality and that we need to find some way of, of marrying the patient agenda with, the, with, the, with my GP agenda because my agenda is always to try and do the best for that patient. But the challenge is that they don't always see it that way and that's that's part of the beauty of the job but there's a veneer to being a GP and what happens I mean it happened in the book secret GP that veneer gets scratched away at points because you know when you've been slammed by you know the 15th super complex unhappy patient 10 minutes after 10 minutes like you just want to explode and um and there are times when when I when I feel like actually I've had a day like that today where you know I've literally come home and I I've just I want to sit down and have a beer and just decompress because it's been it's been one of those days and um, yeah I mean you try and mask it as much as you can but actually I think conversely patients want to see you as a person you know you're not as you said this sort of like you're not a deity you're nothing like that you are a human who has learnt a job. And you're trying to help the person in front of you. And it's not about being nice to them. It's about being honest and telling them the truth and helping them through processes um, related to their health. And um, you, can have a, you can have a nice shit GP if you want, but <laughs> that's not what I want to be. <laughs> that's a good way to put it, yeah. How much time per month do you think that you spend with your finger inside of bums total on average? <laughs> Um, oh, that's a good question, actually. I mean, it, it, you know, I don't hang around when I'm up there. Uh, let's be honest. Well, so okay, let's work it out. So, what's you? What's typical rectal exam length? Twenty seconds. Yeah, because you got to you got to essentially get them on their side, laying mm. on their sort of fetal position, yep. knees up. I usually sort of say, think of queen of country. Uh, you got a lubed, uh, uh, gelled glove. Yep. Inter um, intergluteal you, cleft. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Weren't expecting uh, me to down. know that, were you, Doctor Skittle? That's yeah. because one of my you, best friends, my best friends, is also a doctor as well. So, oh, fantastic. So you know, you know what to ask me now. Okay. And um, you examine the out, you examine the outside, and then you say, okay, bit of pressure, and then you go, and you sweep around, feeling for masses, and you sweep around, feeling the prostate uh, or the edge of the prostate, and then you come out, look at the glove, you're looking for blood, you're looking for um, mucus, um, and then you go away and give them a tissue. 
And uh, not to wipe their eye, that is. That's to just saw the <laughs> yeah. other end. Or two tissues sometimes. Yeah. You know, and that and that's it. But yeah, I mean, I've probably got enough. I've probably had my finger up for long enough to, to see a good ad break in a month. Go, okay, cool. Yeah, well, I mean... It's it's all just accumul it's all just accumulating time, you know. I had um I had salmonella a couple of years ago from Nasty. Africa. Yeah, yeah, really would not recommend it. Yeah. Um yeah, and yeah. <laughs> I got a call. I d- that wasn't a finger up the bum scenario. No, you don't need one for that. Shame. No. Um <laughs> but um there you there there mate, there are paid services everywhere. I'm sure you can find I, it. Yeah, I, I would just need to get a really good friend. Uh Exactly. I got a call. Here's an interesting one for you. I didn't even think of this. I got a call from Environmental Health asking where I'd been eating recently because they knew that I had salmonella before I got a call from my doctor's surgery telling me that the diagnosis was salmonella. Yeah, it's pretty pretty (laughs) swift, isn't it? So Public Health England will have notifiable diseases. If salmonella comes up, they need to find where the source is and track it down and uh, isolate it if need be. I mean... You know, you know, it's a, a very different game when we think about the coronavirus pandemic, but it's that on steroids, really, isn't it? Got you. Yeah, I was like, um, oh, I'm going to guess that's my diagnosis. Thank you for telling me. And just obviously, some fella, some girl on the other end of the phone trying to track down like a, a, a hotel that had been serving bad chicken or something. I'm like, unless you, yeah. unless you fly to Africa, yeah. that's that's not going to happen. Pretty tough. Um, yeah. How hard is it to get fired as a GP? Uh, well, I haven't been fired yet, but I'm probably working quite hard to, um, I, I think, I think it's pretty hard, you know, GPs are in demand, you know, we're, we're short thousands of GPs and, and government after government make pledges that they're going to, uh, you know, boost, you know, the GP numbers by 5,000 come 2020, 2021. And it just doesn't quite Matt, get there. I think to get, to get struck off, to get fired as a GP, I think you have to have gross misconduct. And, um, uh, you know, they're the kind of guys and girls that you're seeing in the Daily Mail um, after their, their uh, sort of lawsuit. So you're seeing people that are sort of using sexual exploitation, taking photographs, unnecessary examinations. Um, you don't, you wouldn't get struck off for just being a bad GP. You get pulled aside, mentored, trained up. I mean, the training is good. Um, the reason you get, uh, you'd probably get fired is if you've got a darker side to you that comes out. Uh, yeah, uh, I was thinking that the stakes are obviously quite high. There's a, a story in the book about a lady who comes through and points a finger at you and accuses you of not detecting her husband's soon-to-onset heart attack that kills yeah. him. And yeah. it's like, well, that's... That if obviously there's a lot of uh, emotion and not mm. culpability, but there's there's a um, a potential for someone to find you, create you, be the the reason, the behest of this particular problem that's occurred, yeah. right? And and that and and to be honest with you, Chris, that that happens a lot, partly because we're the person sat in front of them. You know, if you're looking for someone to blame for 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 a loved one's death. Um, a GP is, is someone who's there, is accessible. And, and often, I, I think I remember I said about this in the, in the book with that particular um, lady, you know, it's a grief reaction and I bared no, bare, no bad um, feelings towards her because while it was a horrible experience for me, her experience was, was immeasurably worse. And what I was receiving from her was her grief reaction. Mm. Um, 
you know, and, and that, I suppose that's, you get a thick skin as, as a GP, as a doctor in general, I think, or as a nurse or any healthcare professional, you get a thick skin because that stuff happens all the time. You get blamed for missing cancers. You get blamed for not diagnosing heart attacks or, or not seeing the signs of one. You know, we are human and um, I will miss things in my career. I will miss cancers. I know that because I'm I'm not, you know, I'm not infallible and I'm human and it's just yeah, that's the life that we live. And um, every doctor knows that. If you speak to a doctor who says, I'm never going to miss a cancer, I'm never going to miss a, an acute serious illness that could let, lead to a fatality, I think they're killing themselves. I mean, that, you know, we have to have the humility to say, I'm going to, I'm really going to fuck up at some point and I'm going to have to just shoulder that. Because if you're seeing, at all times. yeah, and if you're seeing hundreds of patients a week, you just need to miss one thing. Like just one tiny thing, one subtle symptom. That's, uh, you know. Stakes are high, Max. The stakes are really, yeah, really high. Yeah, but that's why I love the job. I mean, I love the, I love the risk that comes with it. People, <clears throat> you know, when I, when I suddenly realized I was coming out of medical school and going into being a GP, I was like, oh, my God, this is going to be the most boring experience <laughs> of my life. But... You know, I've done A&E, I've survived all that, I've enjoyed it, it's great fun, but I want to come home on the weekends, I want to come home to my family in the evenings, um, let's make that decision. What I found is that every day is just the a cacophony of, of experiences of, um, with patients, and I, I love it, like from the acute illnesses to the utterly weird and wonderful to the um sad and somber i mean you know you can one day you can be talking about someone's sore knee and within 10 minutes you're talking to you know the guy in the book benny who came comes in and his question is you know seriously max what what's the meaning of life <laughs> and and that that puts him immediately on my top five patient list of all time because just to have the to have the, the guts to come in and ask the question that perhaps we all do wonder from time to time, particularly at sort of 2 a.m. when you can't sleep, to come in and ask me and think that I'm going to have the answer. Yeah, it's a, it's a low-key I mean, compliment, man. Really, yeah, really is. Yeah. I know who's going to have the answer to this. Dr. Skittle, <laughs> Dr. Skittle knows the answer it, to this one. Ex exactly. And, uh, and uh, you know, well, you had to read the book to find out what happens. But uh, he is, uh, he's one of my all-time favorites. Never forget him. No, it's okay. it's a little bit like being a doctor, being a GP sounds a little bit like being a really hardcore hairdresser. Like everyone <laughs> that comes in, their hair's shit. Like yeah. it's totally shit. And the best that you can do is get them to leave with an acceptable hairdo, which might happen in three weeks' time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what? I've got having like you and like all of us just gone through the lockdown and had a lockdown haircut <laughs> and tried to cut my wife's hair oh dear. um it is not that easy and so hat first of all let's just give a hats off to the hairdressers Absolutely, because yeah. it is not easy um but yeah i mean being a gp is a bit like being a shit hairdresser uh, you do <laughs> you have to you have to go in and you have to figure out how to make people's lives better but the, but the the major factor with that statement is that that doesn't mean anything unless the patient is motivated to change. If the patient comes in and you say, you need to do X, Y, and Z to make this condition better, and they don't, that's on them. 
that's not that and that's the truth um i can do all i can to try and encourage them make them see and understand why they need to do something but if they have the mental capacity to say i get if i don't do these treatments i might come to serious harm or death and they decide not to there is nothing i can do about that that really surprised me to find that out yeah I, a doctor tells me to do a thing and i'm i'm pretty much to the letter but you had a lady who had put off a, a breast cancer assessment four, uh, four yes. times because of work you had yeah. a, a guy who was yeah. like pre-diabetic high blood cholesterol smoked every day drank every day didn't eat anything was also like looked like he might be a low-key 60 year old porn star and then mr he wanted... Tos yeah mr tosca he was one of my faves he was like just came in smelling of sort of stale cigar and sex <laughs> he was uh he was he was a great he was a great guy uh, i hope he's still with us but you, uh, like but, all these people yeah. and they're not and you're saying look th this is this is where you're at and there was another lady who had an existential crisis in front of you yeah. and didn't bother to go to her her uh, cancer treatment or whatever because she was like, yeah. just give it to someone that deserves it. And I'm thinking, like, yeah. uh, it, just seeing people like that, it must be it must be challenging as a as a doctor to do the thing, get them to this as much as you can do, lead a horse to water, but yeah, then you get stuck. It, it, it is, and some people find that harder than others. So for me, I I. I'm very, you know, I'm I'm blunt. I will say that, you know, if if you don't do this, this is what could happen, and um and of course you do. I don't want people to think that's me being incredibly harsh and then going, that's it. I've wiped my hands with them. So the lady, for example, who you mentioned, who it, I don't think it was a cancer treatment. It was her her diabetes appointment, and and um she'd said, oh, I like, you know, I I'm not good enough to have treatment. Give it to someone else who's 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 salvageable. And um, and and in the book, I think I said, you know, I will follow up with her in a few weeks time and I will say, oi, have you changed your mind? <laughs> and here's why you should change your mind again. And you keep doing that. So I guess I guess what I'm saying is people may listen to me or they may read the book, which I, I'm getting a feeling is going to be a bit of a Marmite book with people. Um, they might think Max is a, a real dick, but actually every single decision I make, everything I say or do is, is in the patient's interests. Um, at, because that's why I love the job because I'm doing something to help try and help someone else. You just don't need to sugarcoat this stuff because health doesn't is sugarcoated enough. You know, you just sort of need to go on sort of Instagram and, and, and you know, you can get some shiny enameled tooth, um, doctor who can tell you this stuff. Um, but, but the, the, the reality is that you know, you had to be blunt, you had to be harsh, um, because you're trying to do everything in their best interest. The rubber really, really does meet the road when you go and sit down with a GP. I don't want the guy on Instagram who who did a, a level three NVQ in physiotherapy. I don't want him. I want someone that had to go through the fire and brimstone that is five years of med school yeah. and two years of locum and blah, yeah. blah, 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 blah. And, and you experience that, and and uh, in the secret GP, I, I have a couple of flashbacks to you know, there's a chapter about when I went through my GP training and what led me to to make that decision. And there are stories in there about you know the experiences that you go through as a junior doctor and how you cut your teeth, and as you say, how the rubber meets the road. Can we play GP bingo? Can you try and come up with some of the cliche phrases? 
that you either find yourself saying a lot or that you hear your other doctors saying a lot. So, for, for instance, on this show, I'll tend to say something like the rubber meets the road or the tip of the spear or you, you, where, uh, you got to have a pair of bass, brass balls yeah. for that. What are some yeah. of the ones that you find yourself saying a lot? So, <laughs> so I, I think for me, uh, often it's what do you want? because actually sometimes you just need to cut through all the faff and just say to them what is it you want um what do you think you've got definitely what do you think you got because people will come in and they'll listen to you and they'll say actually well i I, you know i played dr google and i think it's this (laughs) um that's the that's the doctor equivalent of do you know why i pulled you over exactly (laughs) exactly spot on um and then i suppose the other one is well so this is this is and i I mentioned this in the epilogue as well this is the the pre-coronavirus um statement it's probably just a virus (laughs) okay and that is the most terrifying thing isn't it that for 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 a GP, you come and you're like, oh, I need antibiotics which treat bacterial infections. I've got, I've got a cough and I've got a sore throat and a runny nose. I need antibiotics. And you go, look, it's just a virus. It's a cold. Go home. Spend time with your family. Hug them. Take paracetamol. Go to work. You'll be fine. You don't need to stay off work for this. It's just a virus. I mean, fast forward to 2020 and, and it's a totally different world. Can you imagine if you'd written this book from mid 2020 until early 2021 uh yeah i mean it would be you know never say never there might be another one in the pipeline at some point but um the corona gp yeah that's (laughs) that's what i want yeah i mean this is uh yeah i mean it'd be a different book i mean i'd be clad head to toe in uh personal protective equipment i'd be two two meters away from everyone um and i'd be on the phone all the time because you know gp has gone from 80 percent face-to-face 20 percent phone call as a split to you know what was at one point for many months 100 percent face-to-face uh sorry 100 percent telephone call and if you've got any symptoms that suggest you might have um a coronavirus infection you go off to a hot hub where you're met by um, uh, specialist teams. So it's a, just a, it's a totally different uh, game. And um, but things are changing. You know, we you know we have to stay positive, and we have to think that things, to a degree, will return to a normal semblance of a of a NHS and the healthcare service that we we know and love. Um, but you'll probably find that GPs might talk to you on the phone more because we've realised how much we can actually manage on the telephone. Um, and that frees up time. It means that we can speak to more patients um, and address more issues um, than perhaps historically we could. You were saying that sometimes a significant portion of the 10-minute window you have to deal with a patient is actually taken up with them getting up from the seat, getting through reception, <laughs> finding finding, finding yeah. the room that you are in. So the, take us through. You press the button and your 10-minute timer starts when you say, uh, Christopher Williamson, please come to unit yeah. five or whatever. Yeah, yeah, a- absolutely. So so put it in some context. When I was first a doctor and first a GP, um, I would read your notes, Chris, for about 10 minutes, you know, um, and I'd be like, right, I know all about you. I'm going to call you in now. And, and you press a buzzer because you think that to have that information, you're some, in some way sort of forearmed about what's about to happen, which is just 
it, it's just total bollocks because what happens is you come in and you throw something out of left field like what's the meaning of life um and uh and so that's and that's so that's one of the things so what we do is we um when i press that button i stand at the door and i go look i wait for them to come down hi it's max come in and um and then you just wait for them to start talking because everyone will have a preset um, idea about what they want to say. So everyone has got a preset sort of, you know, opening few sentences about <laughs> Max. This is my problem. This is what I've. Um, this is what I've got, and uh, you need to let them get that out because if you don't, you're basically um, stopping everything that's been stored up inside from them. And then you listen to it, and then you ask some more questions, and then by about minute three, you've got a rough idea, you should have, or certainly I, I try to do, have a rough idea about what you think they've got and what you need to do. So what's your management plan? So what tests you need to do, what treatment are you going to give, and what follow-up are you going to have? And then the next seven minutes are basically spent making that dream become a reality and getting them out the door <laughs> at minute 10. Because, you know, if you let it just kind of waffle on and drag on and let them sort of, you know, give you war and peace, what happens is that you don't really get to the meat of the issue. Um, then you find that you can't address all their problems. Um, and then you find that then knocks on to the rest of your clinic. So you have to, um, you have to be quite brutal. I sometimes will just stop people in their tracks and be like, just, just what, like I said, you know, when we were playing GP bingo, hmm. what's the problem? What do you think you got? What do you want? Because then you can make things happen. Whereas if you get to 10 minutes and they're still telling you about their first symptom, you know, you can either push them out the door or you can listen, but then you basically make everyone else late for their appointments. So, you know, you've got to be a little bit bullish about it. It seems to me I've got a, a number of friends who work in healthcare and are either junior doctors or on locum or whatever it might be. And they have said unanimously that the worst sorts of patients that they get are the ones who come in and don't have a defined problem. I don't know whether this is people <laughs> who are hypochondriacs, whether this is people who are just lonely and want some attention. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you often come across those? Yeah, we do. And um, the, the undefined problem is sometimes the most unnerving problem because, you know, I've had experiences where patients have come in and they've said, I just don't feel right. And you're absolutely right. There is a there is a large group of people that are lonely, that are isolated, that um, uh, that just want to see you to have company, and that really does happen. Or there are those people that think that they might have something. They've gone online, they've Googled, or they have a family member who's just been diagnosed with a cancer. They come and see you, and they they don't want to say, "I think I've got cancer, Max." They just say, "You know, I just don't feel right." And you have to explore that, and and. You sometimes hear, particularly sort of more junior doctors say, oh, he or she was a really bad historian. Like they just didn't tell me what, they didn't give me any information. That That's not true. Like you're just not good at getting it. And you need to, you know, it's your job. You're the detective. Your job is to say, okay, well, let's pick apart your life for a second. You know, who's at home with you? What's your daily routine like? What's your appetite like? What are you eating? Bowels okay? Passing urine? Sweating at night, any weight loss, bruising at all? Like you just go through and you start in your head to mentally tick off this checklist. 
But then as you do that, you then come to the, the third category of the I just don't feel quite right people. And they're the ones that have got something serious going on, that this is just the first sign of a niggling symptom that then manifests itself. Um, and, and, you know, you do your blood tests or you do your chest X-ray and you reveal something else. And and that's why it's really important. It's important never to 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 ignore any patient um, and it always to listen to them. And and I think the one thing that keeps me going is that I've got diagnostic curiosity. You know, I want to know. I'm curious about Sherlock people. Holmes. Yeah, yeah, and it and it's and and when you do it that way, you don't miss stuff. Um, if you get blasé, um, that's when you do miss stuff and you make mistakes. Hey, we said, and then they're the ones that suffer. We we said on the show last year that curiosity is the most important personality trait of the 20th century, and it turns out not only is that true for entrepreneurs and podcasters, but also maybe for doctors as well. Which is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, you get bored in a job like this. You know, you're going to switch off. You're not going to think. And uh, yeah, then errors come in. Um, I love my job. I wouldn't do anything else. Um, uh, I think it's I think it's brilliant. You know, you get to see the kind of light and the dark and all the shades of grey in between life. It must be the, the spectrum of people and experiences that you're exposed to must be a real shock to the system, at least initially. It is. So, so when I was uh, so when I was working in the sort of inner city surgery that where the books um, set, um, you did. You went. You saw people from um, extreme affluence to extreme poverty, to different socioeconomic backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds with different cultural beliefs around health, to um, all the way to gang members. Um, so you know there are people that would be your friends that you'd think I'd go. You know, I'd go out to dinner with them. There to the people that you would cross the road actively <laughs> to avoid. To avoid. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, it's like you know, I when I, you know, in the book I talked about I was out with, you know, my wife um, Alice, and we were we were walking, and she was like, "I want a lollipop," and I'm like, "Okay, fine, you want a lollipop, All right?" And then of course there's just a big gang of of, of kids, sort of. Um, who are just hovering around the shop door, who just look like they want to kill me. And then um, I'm just thinking, oh, bloody hell, like of all the manly things I need to go and get is a lollipop. So I, so I go in, you know, I pick a Magnum because I think that's the most manly masculine ice cream I could possibly get from the, the shop. And then on the way out, like one of the, uh, one of the kids goes, you know, all right, Dr. Max, uh, and it turns out he's one of my patients. And and but you just so you just don't know, you know you, and and it doesn't matter who they are. You help everyone, and because everyone's got a backstory, no one ended up in that position by choice. No one wants to see their GP. I think that's the other thing to say, Chris. Is people don't unless you're lonely, people don't want to come and say I've got a problem. Like people want to be healthy. It's just inherent with us in us. Um, I, there was a very small minority of people who who do like to be unhealthy and 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 sort of be medicalized, but I think that's a story for another day. But you know, the majority of people want to be healthy, so they don't want to see us. Um, and I think that's the other thing that we need to bear in mind. It's an interesting dynamic, isn't it, for the relationship yeah. between? There's there's very few things that you have to go out of your way. Like maybe the maybe the tax man. 
you know, or maybe like the people that deal with like environmental health. If you've got, you, you don't really want to go and see the guy that cleans your drains out. But even yeah. that's not. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, there are there are lots, you know, there are lots. People don't, you know, we like to think people like seeing us, but actually, you know, making the best a of a bad situation, mate. That's what you do. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. I didn't know that doctors had performance targets. How does that work? So, um, so I think what people might not realise is that GP surgery is a is a is essentially a business. I mean, it makes its own profits. Um, and what happens is there's um, there's something called quality and outcome frameworks, which is QUAF, which I really don't <laughs> want to bore your listeners with, Chris, because it, it really is for the insomniacs uh, to, to hear about this. But in a nutshell, you get um, if you have you know ten thousand people and a thousand of those have high blood pressure, if you can control ninety five percent of those people's blood pressure to within a certain target you will get extra payment. So basically they're saying, well done, you've kept their blood pressure in good control, which means they have reduced risk of cardiovascular disease like heart attack or strokes. Um, therefore, we will reward you um, with uh, a financial remuneration. Um, and the, the concept is that by doing that, we are setting all these health indicators that if we can meet those targets, those targets are linked to research that says, if you do this, if you have this in this person, they will be healthier and therefore they will have less morbidity, i.e. ill health, and less mortality, i.e. death. Um, the, the issue I have with it is that it's, uh, it's retrospective. It's going, this guy has got high blood pressure. Brilliant. Right. Let's uh, give him a medication. Check his kidney function blood test um, once a year tell him to exercise and reduce his salt content, get the blood pressure down and tick, we've met our, our, our quaff indicator, um, our target. What should happen is they should say, we'll pay you for the amount of people that you can keep off of that high blood pressure register. We'll pay you to say, think prospectively, mm. rather than retrospectively, to think prospectively and say, you as a practice do everything you can to keep them within a healthy body weight, having a healthy diet, exercising, and naturally keeping their blood pressure down, we'll reward that. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and it doesn't work like that for every target, but there are lots of, you know, you know, but lifestyle is, you know, the buds, sort of buzzword of the, the you know, the, the 20th century but it, it's rooted in, in fact as well and science that if you can do the basics really well, you don't need drugs and you don't need interventions. It's interesting thinking about the parallels between um, physios, physiotherapy and, yeah. do and doctors because there's a perverse incentive, bizarrely, with a physio in that when they get a person better, they no longer get paid off that person. And it's kind of this quaff thing is kind of somehow uh, working, deriving its metrics of success from that in a weird way. Yeah, they are. I, I, but I think the one thing I would say is that even with, with any healthcare professional, whether it be physiotherapist, occupational therapist, uh, speech and language, or a nursing staff, doctors, um, there are always patients. Always, always. You know, the world keeps turning. People keep getting older. People get muscular, skeletal problems that need physiotherapy. Uh, you know, 
it is uh it will never be short of um supply how if you were to coach everyone who's listening thousands of people that are listening if you could coach them through how to be the perfect patient what would you tell them to do what can we all do to make your lives easier and to also get better outcomes ourselves as patients mm, okay all right this is a good one so um let's go with top three so top three number one turn up on time <laughs> okay <laughs> but i appreciate there's probably gonna be a lot of people shouting at me and get being like yeah but max you're never on time anyway um so i can see where that, that sort of therein lies the rub it becomes circular yeah. um two is if you're coming with something like a rash on your thigh uh, two is dress appropriately so if you're coming to me with a sore knee don't come wearing knee-high boots and skinny jeans because it takes about 10 minutes for you to get that stuff off so I can actually look at your knee. Yep. Um, and, and thirdly, I would say don't save up your problems. I think that's a really important one. So uh, I have a lot of people that come to me and think that they're doing me this enormous uh, service by going, Max, I've... Uh, I've saved up um, my seven problems because I just thought, you know, you want to see other people around the, you know, in the, in the previous week. So I just didn't want to take it. So anyway, here's my seven problems and I'm dividing seven by uh, 10 minutes or 600 seconds, which, um, you know, well, you know, which I can't even do the math. Not long. Um, not long basically. And, um, and you can't do it. So I would say two, three, a real push. But I also, I suppose, Chris, I'd, I'd um, I, I sort of put a little um, alert on that as well, saying that I guess it, because people will sometimes say, oh, by the way, I've just got this little thing, and they think it's a little thing, but I, in fact, think it's a really big thing. Mm. And, and you then have to um, go through a whole process. So really interestingly, and I get the one I get a lot is um, – Women might say, I spoke to them, a couple, talk to them about a couple of different issues, and then they'll say, oh, boy, just as they're going, I thought, I've just got this one thing, like, I just got I had this little uh, sort of lump sort of just near my breast. And immediately, you know, you think, okay, well, I can't, I can't unhear that. <laughs> um, You're halfway and, out the door, close, close yeah, the door. Yeah, and, and it may, it could be for many reasons. It might be they're anxious about bringing it up, and, you know, it's like, you know, so, you know like a 15-year-old going and trying and buying a, buy a porn mag in a, in a news agent and they like buy about seven different things before they kind of point at the playboy and say, and can I have that as well? You know, it, it's, it's really difficult. And, and they, but in any case, I've heard it. And at that point you have to go, well, I have to examine you or I would like to examine you if, if they, if they give you permission and um, you need a chaperone. So I need to go um, downstairs to the reception and get a, a trained chaperone um, from reception to stand and, and make sure that everything is above board. And um, if there, anything ever did come to light or be an issue, we had a third independent party. Um, and then you examine them and then you, then you make a decision. That is that you can't do that in, in a minute. Um, so I often will navigate that third tip by going, okay, um, if they say I've got four things, I'll say just, just. I don't want you to go into detail, but just give me the give me the highlights, give me the top four bullet points, the and headlines. I'll go knee pain, lump in the breast, um, uh, um, constipation, and I've got a sore eye, and I'll go okay, tell me about the 
breast lump first. <laughs> you organize them in yeah, order, yeah, order yeah. of priority. Yeah, yeah, you triage them. You triage them. Because they might not, why should they know that one is more important than the other? You know, that's my job. Uh, and so, you know, sometimes you have to be blunter with others uh, the, um, than some. But, you know, that's, you know, you try and, again, it's all about trying to get as much maximizing the time and what you can give to that patient um and not getting annoyed at the same time <laughs> i think um i think not saving it up is is a really really good point we were talking on this podcast on the pilot episode like three years ago mm. uh, about one of the uh, regular co-hosts yusuf who uh, had a uh, i'm gonna forget what it's called he called it lemon ball but it's actually got a very specific name it's where one of the ducts testicular ducts Gets oh, so, uh, so you had a varicocil? Yes, I or think. Or a hydrocil. Hydrocil is fluid. Hydrocil is uh, fluid around the around the testis. So yes. your scrotum or your, your sac on one side uh, looks like you've stuffed a party balloon in it. Yeah. So he yeah. had he had hydrocil, but even him, as a person, I think at the time who was third year med school, yeah. maybe fourth year med school, even him, he, the the um, inbuilt denial of medical problems ran so deep. That even he was like, no, 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 it's always been that that size. It's always one's always been a bit bigger than the other. It's fine, and yeah. it just like gone around. And this is how people, like you say, can almost accumulate this little collection of things. It's yeah. like, ah, oh, well, one of them has got to the point where I need to see you about that. And by the way, here's all of the other shit that I didn't yeah. want to bring up in yeah. the interim. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's the um, sort of in the introduction, I talk a bit about windows and uh, and the idea that um, as a GP you know, I hold up this, this window pane and stare into your life. You know, I see your house, I see your, you know, I'm looking at your life and, and there are different types of patients. So you get the patients who come in and say, you know, I hold up the window and they point at their knee and say, Max, uh, you know, I've got knee pain. Can I, can you, um, can you look at it? And you get those who sort of hold up a window go and go, Max, I'm, I'm, I'm worried about my cholesterol. But then I say, you're worried about your cholesterol, but I've just spied your your blood sugar result, and I'm worried about you developing diabetes. So different agenda. And then finally, you get people who hold up the window to someone else, and they go, I'm worried about my loved one. And, and they say, you know, I'm worried, often it's, I'm worried about my aging parent. I think they're getting a bit more confused. I'm worried they've got dementia. So it's not that they are, it's not about them, it's about another person. And, and they're the challenging cases, because you're kind of, you haven't, you can't talk necessarily talk to that person who's come to see you about somebody else. You can't talk to them about, you can listen to them. You can listen to everything they have to say. But you can't necessarily say, here's what I'm going to do. You can say, okay, I'm going to book to have them come in and see them myself. Um, but you can't, you can't discuss someone else's case um, if, you know, with a relative if they haven't given permission. So yeah, it's all about windows and journeys. It's interesting that uh, the process of someone who isn't the patient coming in on behalf of the patient, I imagine yeah. that must be, the, there's a whole host of different tripwires for both parties to fall over there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it gets, you know, it gets a bit muddy when you kind of look at teenagers, you know, when you start, you know, you phone up, you see you've got a 15 year old patient She's phoned up and she wants the oral contraceptive pill. And you look at her phone details and it's got the home phone number 
and then a mobile number. And you've got no idea if that's mum's mobile number, dad's mobile number, <laughs> the guardian's mobile number, the nanny's or the patient's. And then you phone and you're like, hello, it's Dr. Skittle. Can I, can I speak to so-and-so? And then immediately, like the next day, you might get a phone call from the mother saying, what did you talk to my daughter about? And you have to say, well, look, I'm, I'm really sorry, but it's, it's confidential. And yes, she is under 16, but she has something called Gillick Competence, which basically says, uh, which is specific around um, or, uh, sort of, uh, sort of contraception, so young girls who want to have oral contraception. It's called, it's called um, Gillick Competence? Gillick, G-I-L-L-I-C-K. Gillick and there's also Fraser Competence as, well, Competence as well, which is sort of bigger picture. Um, and uh, But it's basically saying if someone is in a sexual relationship under the age of 16 and uh, it is with someone of a similar age, there's no signs of abuse or um, grooming, and they are going to have sex anyway. You know, you don't want to be the doctor that says, well, fine, I'm not going to give you um, contraception because um, you're under 16. What you say is, well, look, if, if you are not going to stop having sex, I want to be help you be as safe as you can be and against unwanted pregnancies. Um, and, of course, talk counselling about safe sex and condoms and STIs is a whole different issue. Um, but... But if that patient, if that young woman has a young girl has a the the capacity to retain, understand, and communicate the decision that they would like to make, you have to respect that, and you have to respect their confidentiality. And the only time you would break it is if you suddenly found that there were um, you know signs of abuse or grooming or anything that made you feel that this was um, a safeguarding issue. But if the mother calls, you have very very difficult conversations because you're you essentially are, you know, your duty is to the patient. Um, and all you can do is encourage the, the, the patient to speak to her mother. Um, and, and of course you do that. You know, you don't just go, oh, let's keep this secret between you and I. You say, <laughs> she, do you want to talk about this with your mother? Because it's a big issue. And I think that, you know, it would be really helpful if she's supportive. And we get that. You know, I get... Um, uh, teenagers coming with their mum and, and and saying, I'd like to go on the contraceptive pill. And it might not be for safe sex, uh, for sort of protecting against um, uh, unwanted pregnancies. It might be because they're having really difficult um, problems with their menstrual cycle, um, which, you know, as a GP, as a male GP, is something I never thought I'd be so comfortable talking about. But, you know, after all these years, like it's not, it, it's we see it every day. Just we talk a bit about of menstruation, every day. everyone. Just a bit of menstruation. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. I mean that, and it, because that is normal. I mean the the um, the worst, most frustrating case I had. Just to talk about menstruation for a second, Chris. I hope Finally, that's what we're here for. Was uh, was I had a, a a teenager come in with her mum, really embarrassed, and the school had actually asked for her to get a letter from the GP to explain why she was able to be excused from her classes um, because of her heavy and painful menstrual cycle, which infuriated me because, you know, this is a natural, normal, healthy, physiological process for women. Um, and, and it was 100% stigmatized by that school in that moment and, and embarrassed that, that child 
she was a child, you know, she was sort of 14 years old, and um, embarrassed her for the fact that she has to hand a letter to her teachers. Um, so then I basically said, well, uh, fine, here's a letter, but I'm going to um, extend my scope of, of that letter and say that teachers are not to be asking her what she's leaving the classroom for so for all i know she you know she can she can go out whenever she wants now um <laughs> she's the got point the free is, hall plus yeah exactly yeah because but the point is, and 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 also the school can pick up the phone and speak to me if they want to talk about anything else because just a a, a child a 14 year old should not be made to feel like that and um and and just their things that i feel just really strongly about like you have to fight these people's corner because People will say, oh, no, that's normal. You need to say, and actually, no, it's not. You shouldn't be stigmatizing something that is a healthy process, um, a normal physiological process in, in women, and making this young girl feel uncomfortable um, and make her feel potentially more uncomfortable about talking about it oh, with hell, yeah. other professionals in the future. Any harder. Well, this is, um, we, we spoke recently on this show to do with the peak end rule. Have you heard about this? No. Okay. This might be interesting. This might be interesting for you as someone who has to deal with a high volume of patients and yeah. you, you don't want to cause problems. The peak end rule is a psychological bias that suggests our memory applies a higher weight to the most intense and the end of any experience. So let's mm. say that you're going on a roller coaster, you will remember the most scary bit and the last bit. And the original study was conducted during endoscopies. And what they found was that they could actually extend the length of time that someone was undergoing the surgery and bring their level of discomfort down at the end. And the rate of perceived discomfort retrospectively ended up being significantly lower, even though by every objective measure, they'd actually left it in for longer than it needed yeah. to be. Um, and I wonder... When I was thinking about that, there was this quote where they said one of the most uh, compassionate things that you can do for a young child, your young child, that's going to a doctor's or a dentist's or whatever, if they're going to have something that's going to make them feel uncomfortable, is to do that, is to almost extend it and dampen down the discomfort toward the end. Yeah. Because over time, that compounding effect, that that girl now, you could you hit the nail on the head, could be terrified of talking to anybody in authority about anything to do with mm -hmm. her body for the rest of life or you know the, a, a three-year-old that needs to have a complicated uh, dentist operation yeah. and it goes a bit it's kind of a bit painful and whatever and that's it rest of your life t terrified of the dentist big implications here uh, absolutely and and because of that i think that you know you strip the medicine out of it you know being a gp or being in healthcare in general, you have a huge responsibility because every every patient contact you have, particularly with children, you are setting the tone. You're 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 you know you're setting a, a bar at which their experiences of seeing a doctor or a healthcare professional. Uh, which is why when I see kids, it is as fun for me as it hopefully is for them. There are stickers. We talk about their favorite um, toys or what sports they like. Um, and and often they don't really even realize that they're being examined or that we've done a consultation. Um, and, and in the same measure, whenever someone comes with a parent, you talk to the, you talk to the child first. Like it's, you don't talk to the parent. And, I, and that's really, really important because they need to realize that you are my focus. Um, it's about you. So I'll be like, 
mum and dad just sit tight for a second i want to hear from i want to hear from from little susie um and then i'll chat to her and then at the end i'll go susie do you mind if i ask your mum and dad some questions as well and you know more often than not they'll say yeah fine because it has to be about them and then and then they enjoy it and one of the you know most rewarding thing about about my experiences working in a in in a city gp is that um i'll get kids come back and want to see me or even it's a sister of a little boy that i saw but the little boy wanted to come with the sister because they were coming back to see me and they wanted to have another <laughs> such sticker. A tri- such a which trip is great. to go and see Dr. Skittle. Yeah, that's yeah. cool, man. Which is, which is really nice. And actually, you know, whatever all the shit that happens, it, it's stuff like that. It's just really heartwarming and just makes me love, love the job. And I spoke to a patient the other day who was having a real change of life direction, had got through some uh, quite difficult mental health issues. And he was like, just to say thanks, like you totally changed my life. And it's not about changing people's lives and it's, it's, uh, uh, it's nothing to do that. But my God, it was really nice to hear that actually you'd had that kind of an impact. That's, really, li- that's really lovely to hear. I, I tweeted something similar the other day that said, um, if you love your favorite content creators, tell them that you enjoy their content because a message means an awful lot more than yeah. a play count. And it's the same for you. Like, just getting someone better, that is more than sufficient. That's why you say it over and over again in the book. You do it yeah. for that reason as a caregiver. But someone coming back to do that must really sort of drive that nail home. It does. It, it really does. And, um, and that's, yeah, I mean, I love it. I mean, that's, it's, you don't go looking for it and you don't sort of go to, I certainly don't go to work every day expect, expecting to see it um, or hear it. But when, when it comes along, it's, it's lovely pretty special yeah Yeah. what do you wish that dr skittle from five years ago knew that you know now with regards to work or if you've got some some junior doctors perhaps ones that are just about to graduate or ones that are on locum and about to go into what are what are some of the things that that they should know or that you wish you'd knew well that's a tough question um let me just think about that for a second what would i what I want to tell somebody just what are your um, yeah if, that, if that, you it, bring... that it that it gets that it gets easier in many respects that the 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 sort of um, the conscious processes that you go through as a doctor get more automated and uh, when I see a patient now I don't think right what is their presenting complaint. Right, what's their past medical history? Right, what's their drug history? Right, what's their social history? It just comes out in a conversation. And I think that's what I would say from a professional perspective. From a personal perspective, I would say always look after your own well-being as well because you can burn out very easily as a doctor if you, or, or a nurse or any healthcare professional if you, um, if you just don't eat, don't drink, don't sleep. <laughs> Don't look after yourself in some in some way. Um, um, uh, don't look after yourself in some way because if you do that, you're then no good to the patient. You need you need a health. To, you know, be blunt, being really blunt. You need a healthy GP. If you get you pick a, per, a burnt out, exhausted, just emotionally shattered shell of a, a man or a woman, they are not going to want to help you at six thirty on a Friday if you're the umpteenth patient they've seen and that is their that's their capacity you need someone who um 
is is just ready to keep going, feels fresh, and that's that's why it's so that's why it's so important. And also partly, and I really feel like I should explain this: why we don't work five days a week in clinics. You know, I don't I don't work Monday to Friday um, seeing patients every single day. I, there's one day where I do something differently, um, and that's because emotionally you can't handle that burden, um, and you would really burn out quite quickly. I found that so interesting. The the sort of parting insight that I'd love to get from you is how doctors deal with the emotional distress and the trauma associated with the job because you get taught all of the things that you need to do, but from, again, speaking to a ton of buddies that have been through med school, it doesn't seem like there's a massive amount of explanation on how to deal with being unable to save a patient's life that you really cared about or hearing a sad story about a family member who doesn't want to come in or any of that stuff. What are some of the ways that you've found are, are effective for, for getting through that? So, so I mean, for me, I've, I've always found that I've been able to manage um, those things quite well. Um, but I think what really helps is um, – uh, the things that help all of us, you know, it's exercising, it's trying to uh, eat well and talking to your friends about these things or talking to your loved ones um, and just decompressing, writing a book. I don't know. You know, <laughs> you, you've just got to find ways to get through it. And But people will deal with it very differently, you know, and general practice is an interesting one because you get you get characters in your GPs who are incredibly soft and softly spoken to very brash and brutish um, and, and everything in between. And I think that uh, I, I, there's no big lessons. It's just about this knowing doing gap. You know, we all, I think we're all intelligent. We all know what we should be doing. We all know what helps someone de-stress and, and process um, work stresses. It doesn't have to be just being general practice or healthcare, you know. Um, and it's about recognizing what you know you should be doing and actually doing it. Um, I think sometimes that's the gap. So, for example, for me at the moment, I know I haven't exercised for about four weeks, and I absolutely <laughs> know that I should be doing it. But my God, Chris, I cannot drag myself out for that first run. Gyms are open um, soon. Don't worry, Max. Gyms are open yeah, in a couple of weeks' true. time. We don't, we don't know how long for. <laughs> uh, so we've got, there's some really cool takeaways here. I love the idea of turning up on time, dressing appropriately, and, and not, not letting everything build up. Hopefully we'll have helped a bunch of doctors and potential med students as well. I'm gonna get, I didn't get around to this, but another tip would be don't come in and show me a photo of your asshole. That would also be, was it, was it a photo or a video? Uh, it was a photo. A photo it looked like a sort of brown drawstring bag, and I was like, "Well, well you know, what do you want me to do with that? Yeah, I need to see it. <laughs> Get it. Look. I need to see it. I've actually had. It's been an interesting few weeks. I've had quite a few dick pics recently, actually, from from patients. So, okay. um, is that all because clinically, that... all clinically indicated? Um, yep. Uh, but you know, it, it happens, and you have, and the, that's the other probably one of the golden takeaways is don't be embarrassed. Like I've seen it all. Like your your GP has seen it all. Like it's don't be shy about talking about problems with your your anus or a vagina or a breast or what happens during sex or pain during sex. Like it could be a symptom of something. So just talk to us about it. And and a good GP 
will make you feel comfortable when you do that. And I think that's a real litmus test. You know, you have to feel comfortable as a patient with who you are speaking to. And, and that's something that, you know, I work to every day. It's just an arsehole. Everyone's got one. That is the parting note of Dr. <laughs> Max Skittle. Should have um, been on the back of the book, shouldn't it? And it's just an arsehole. Everyone's yeah. got one. Um, I usually I'd be, hey man, what do you want to plug? You're people to find you, but you are actively, actively anonymous. So all that I, I can say is the secret GP will be linked in the show notes below. Go and check that out on Amazon. Really cool read. Fans of Adam K. I've also got Chris Daw QC from Justice on Trial coming on very soon. It sounds an awful lot like he's the he's going to do the uh, litigative, the law side version Ooh. of this. So that'll be uh, that'll be really interesting. But man, thank you so much. Love the book and um, good luck getting through the rest of coronavirus. Thanks, Chris. Take care.